E A L. Responsible eating, responsible eating, responsible eating and living. Hello, everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass, and you're listening to Ask a Vegan. It is the 7th of October, 2012. How are you today? I'm feeling pretty good. Of course, here in New York, it's uh, that lovely autumn time, and I think it's my favorite time of the year. The air is really fresh, and it's just uh, just really nice. I like it. makes me happy. Uh, it's not too hot, not too cold, and it's good. So what are we going to talk about this week? I want to talk about children. There's a lot in the news about children and school food, school lunches, and you know what? I have an opinion on it. I have seem to have opinions on a lot of things, and I'm going to give you my opinion on some of the things that are being said and done with regards to children's food in schools. Okay, so we've been hearing about What's going on in school? For There have been a number of organizations for a while now that have been saying that uh, kids' options are really unhealthy. There's lots of junk food that's offered, too much salt, sugar, fat, uh, vending machines that allow candies and sodas and sugary beverages. And, of course, there's all these campaigns against the sugary beverages. Well, the USDA came out with some regula- regulations limiting the number of calories for certain meals. So this is the, what is it called here? Um, The U.S. Department of Agriculture rule, they put a cap on the number of calories in school lunches served to children. And now there are some people that are rebelling against this. Some say that the fruits and vegetables that are being offered to kids in schools, the kids don't like them, they're not eating them. Some say that the foods that are being served, the kids don't like them, they're not eating them. And there's a lot of there's a lot of um, fighting and people coming up with things to repeal this legislation. There are children and teenagers that are starting to boycott school food. (laughs) You know, it reminds me once, uh, this is a little out of it, but it reminds me when I was flying to to India and I was on Aeroflot, which Aeroflot, this Russian airline was probably the worst service I had ever gotten on any airline. And I had ordered a vegan meal and they didn't have it. And, you know, there's nothing more frustrating when you're on a long flight and you've ordered your meal and you've done it weeks in advance and you've checked and confirmed that it was in their system and then they don't have it. And the one of the flight attendants, when I said that I had ordered it, she looked at me as if to say, you should be happy that you have food, period, let alone demanding specifics and choices. And to some degree, she had a point. There are many of us that are privileged, and certainly those of us who are choosing an organic, locally grown, plant-based diet, we have a certain amount of privilege. There are 
a billion people in this world that are starving. There are children that are starving. And when we can choose what food we have to eat, we are fortunate. Putting that aside, we do want to offer our children the best food, and we want to make sure that they're, they're going to eat it. So here are some of my thoughts. I think that the idea of capping the number of calories in school lunches served to children is the wrong way to go. And I think that this No Hungry Kids Act that's being put together to eliminate these new USDA guidelines is also not the right way to go. Here's what I think should be done. I think it takes a lot of different elements to get people to eat healthy food. So children should be learning in school what they should be eating. I was talking to my partner's nephew recently, Josh. I interviewed him on this show several months ago, and he was telling me how in his class, he's 13 now, they're reading this book, Chew on This, by Eric Schlosser. Now, you may remember Eric Schlosser, who wrote Fast Food Nation. He's not a vegan, but he's one of these people that are promoting a change in the way we think about food to eliminate factory farming, to get more organic, no genetically modified. There are a lot of things many of us can agree on, even if not all of us are going to be vegan or vegetarian. And what I enjoyed about talking to Josh about this is that his class is talking about all kinds of aspects of food. They're talking about factory farming. They're talking about how animals are raised, they're talking about how plants are grown, and they're talking about what foods are important to be healthy. So this is a very important element. Children need to know, and they need to learn from a very early age, where their food comes from. I remember once asking uh, my nephew when he was five where apples came from, and he told me they came from Publix, which was a supermarket, and, and rather than saying they came from a tree, and I think um, a lot of children don't really have a good understanding about what it takes to make our food that's on our plate. And if we had more education that talked about where our food came from and, and how much was involved, kids might have a, a better appreciation for what they're being fed. There are lots of different books that approach food and nutrition for all levels. I like Ruby Roth's approach for very young children, which talks about factory farming. Children need to know where their hamburgers come from. They don't come from that hamburger patch at McDonald's that McDonald's wants children to believe that they just grow on bushes. They need to have the whole comprehension. And children especially relate to animals and when they realize that their food is coming from animals, they may not want to eat them or at least eat as much of them. Children also have, and teenagers have, more concern, I think, about the environment than most adults. And you can appeal to teenagers about their food choices from an environmental point of view. If they understood how 
our food system impacted the environment. And if they learned about what foods were light on the planet, were gentle to produce on the planet, and what foods were really devastating and damaging, I believe that most of them would make sensible choices. And then, of course, you know, there's this idea of eating food because it's healthy. And kids, especially teenagers, will take the approach of being contrary. They're not going to do what's right. It's not cool. It's not hip. And that's where we need to get more media and more marketing involved to make it cool and hip to eat healthy. And maybe we don't take, we don't use the word healthy anymore. Maybe we just offer delicious food for children that, by the way, happens to be nutritious. Oh, okay. Now, it is well known in the food service industry that when you're introducing new flavors, new dishes, new products, you have to do it numerous times, maybe six, eight, ten, twelve times before people are ready to accept them and request them and order them. And so when schools are incorporating new programs and in incorporating new foods, what happens is the kids don't want them. They throw them away. They don't order the new dishes that are, that are being offered. And the school says, okay, this program isn't working. We're not going to do it, or we're going to go back to the old way. And they don't realize it takes numerous times to make a difference and to get people to want to buy those foods and try those foods. We know this. And there is some money. There is a cost involved where the schools will have to invest a certain amount in tr letting kids try these foods. Now, I think one, here's just an idea, but there should be special days during the school year, maybe in the cafeteria or maybe in some special environment where kids get to sample new foods. Make it a celebration. Make it fun. Tie it to different kind of colorful, exciting events for kids so that they have good memories that are associated with these new flavors, with these new tastes. I remember the work that was done by Dr. Antonia Dimas. You may have heard of her. Uh, she's worked up at Cornell. She came out with a book called Food is Elementary, which is a 24-week curriculum, and it's designed to be used in schools, mostly for elementary school-aged children. And it works with their standard subject matter, math, history, science, but it incorporates food, and children learn about different foods in interesting ways, and there's a recipe at the end of each chapter that children can make. I believe most of the ingredients in her recipes use USDA commodity foods. So they're foods that are accessible and not expensive for the schools. When they use commodity foods, they're not charged. And uh, she's had a lot of success with her program. There's a lot of great information out there. We just need to be smart, and we're not being smart. When we just say that meals have to have a cap on calories, 
we're focusing on the wrong thing. You know, there was a study recently that said not all calories are the same. Certainly we know that a meal of Coke and Pepsi, Coke or Pepsi and French fries is not the same as nutritious plant foods that add up to the same calories. But there was a a recent study I remember reading that eating a certain amount of calories of vegetables, fruits and vegetables, people tended not to gain as much weight if they ate the same amount of calories in animal products. Our, our bodies do not digest all foods the same way. Uh, and, and we're going to learn more about this over time, that's for sure. We're learning in leaps and bounds about nutrition all the time, but a calorie is not a calorie is it's not every calorie from different sources is not equal. Okay, so we need to have some sort of program where children are learning about food and learning about its impact on the environment, its impact on health, its impact on animals, and then being offered foods that are nutritious and healthy. And I think that in the cafeteria, there should be a salad bar. Kids should have access to choices. But the problem is, in some schools, children only have 10 minutes to eat. This is crazy. There should be a good hour for children to sit down, make their choices, have time to eat. You know, this article in the New York Times this week was talking about how kids throw away a lot of the fruits and vegetables. Okay, maybe they don't like them, but maybe they don't have enough time to eat. So we need to not just be focusing on one thing. We always do this. We do this in all kinds of things. We do it with health where we concentrate on one nutrient or when it comes to illnesses, we concentrate on one drug as a solution our bodies are complex and we need to think of the whole more often. I think we would do a lot better in schools with nutrition if kids were given an integrated approach, an approach of learning about the food, where it came from, how it affected the environment, and how it affected them from a health point of view. And uh, we should be getting a lot more media and marketing involved, a lot more uh, musicians that are hip, actors involved that talk about eating healthy food and making it hip to eat healthy food. And that's how I feel about it. Um, now, some people think, I know back to talking about Josh when he was telling me about reading Chew on This in there, in his classroom, there's a lot of information in there that's very upsetting and scary to kids, even at 13 years old. And there are probably some parents that don't want their kids talking about factory farming, talking about how animals are tortured from birth till death. Personally, I think it's a conversation we all need to be having because if parents don't like it, don't like where their food is coming from, well, they shouldn't be getting their food from those sources. Why should we be hypocrites? We should, we should really believe in where we get our food from and support 
the places that are making food that's good and nutritious and healthy. Okay. So I really, um, I really believe that there are lots of different dishes that can be made that children will naturally eat and naturally like. Certainly, children should be encouraged to eat salad. I can't say enough. And some kids like it and some kids naturally don't. But there are lots of foods that look like fun foods. Burritos are a great example. You can fill a burrito with beans and rice. And if you're clever, you can cut vegetables up really, really small and include them in the tomato sauce. Wrap it up in a wrap. Nobody knows what's in it. You just eat it and it tastes good. And there can be a lot of variations on that theme. Kids want pizza. Kids want pasta. And uh, there are ways to make healthier pizzas, and I would like to see some of that happen. For example, in our house, we make a gluten-free pizza. The crust is made from garbanzo bean flour. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and then we make a really nice sauce and a nut cheese. I would like to see more of that in schools, of course. That's going to take a lot of time. But there are lots of different meals. Certainly the veggie burgers can be better. There's a lot of bad veggie burgers out there, and there are some good ones. And the kids should get the good ones, the good-tasting ones. There's been enough evidence now of schools, certain schools that move to programs where they're making their own food at their facility, and they're including the children more in what they're serving so that it's an integrative approach and everybody's participating. Kids learn more about why they're being served, what they're being served, and they end up making better choices. Their behavior is better. They learn better. It's not just about calories. Now, and then there's another piece of this, and that, of course, is exercise. And there was another study in the New York Times this week that that talked about how exercise programs aren't enough to help children stay fit. Because even if the kids do something at school a few times a week, most of the time their activity is very sedentary. It's part of our culture now. Adults don't work out a lot and children don't work out a lot. And unfortunately, what most adults tend to do is schedule in their physical activity and go to a gym. Now, of course, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but we've really gotten away from moving our bodies all the time. Now, here in New York City, we don't own a car, and I I work at incorporating all my activities as much as possible to making the the tasks that I need to do as physical as possible. When I shop, I walk to the stores, I carry the food back, and there's weightlifting involved, there's aerobic activity involved, and on top of that, I do my running and biking and yoga. Um, but 
we tend to sit a lot in our offices, look at computer screens, come home and watch television. And our children learn from this and they do the same thing. They play video games. Okay, occasionally they'll play uh, Wii and that gets them moving around the, the TV a little bit, but that's not enough. And so there are these exercise programs that are trying to help kids stay fit and the report in the New York Times shows that it's not effective. We need to move more. I like to move it, move it. We need to be moving. All right. I like to think that there will be some positive changes in our culture as we learn more. We'll certainly see what happens. But back to this concept of caps on calories and focusing on calories. You know, there's a lot of diets out there, Weight, Rot Weight Watchers and others, where you're given a meal plan, and the meal plan is centered on calories. And we have plenty of studies now that show these diets don't work. At my nonprofit, Responsible Eating and Living, we put out a lot of recipes, and I do not believe in focusing on counting calories. I don't want to think about numbers. I love numbers, okay? I have an engineering background. I love collecting data. But when it comes to food, I don't want to think about calories. I don't want to think about, am I getting enough protein, carbohydrate, or fat? I remember, gosh, it was a while ago, I went to Le Pain Quotidien. It's a, it's a chain restaurant. We have a few in in Manhattan and I went to one of them and they actually have some really lovely things on the menu and some really delicious vegan options and some vegan and gluten-free options. It's a great place to go with anyone and everyone is satisfied. Everyone can find something fun and interesting on the menu. But they include the nutritional breakdown of each meal, how many calories and what you get in it. And I found that really distracting personally because I was thinking, oh, well, I really shouldn't get this because it has more calories than this or, oh, this one's really high in fat. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't eat that way. I don't think we should eat that way. We should know what foods we should be eating and go from there. I know that I can eat unlimited amounts of dark green leafy vegetables, most vegetables, not the starchy ones, and berries and fruits, unlimited beans. I can eat as much of those as I want, as, as many onions and mushrooms and zucchinis, unlimited, unlimited. I can eat a moderate amount of whole grains and a small amount of raw nuts and seeds. Easy. I do this every day. And I make it very varied. And uh, I personally use a very limited amount of oil and rarely salt. And when I'm having a celebration, when it's a holiday, when it's time for a treat, I will make a cake or a cookie that has sugar and fat and all the things that I normally don't eat because it's a treat. And I don't think about calories. And I think this is the way we should be eating. It's easy, it's fun, and the food tastes great. The reason why I bring it up is because someone made a comment on one of my Responsible Eating and Living recipes recently saying that it would be helpful if we included calories and the amount of protein and carbohydrates in it because she's on a particular diet, I suppose, where she is counting protein and carbohydrates. And my reaction to this is, 
We need to rethink the way we think about food. I haven't said that in a while, but I'm saying it now. So people think, are you getting enough protein? Are you getting enough calcium? And the thing is, there are nutrients we have not even discovered yet that we don't know if we're getting enough of. Are you getting enough flavonoids? Are you getting enough phytochemicals? Are you getting enough glutamine? Are you getting enough folate? Do you really want to think that way when you eat? I don't. And I don't think nature intended us to be focused on all of the macronutrients and micronutrients. The idea is simple. Focus on whole, minimally processed plant foods, preferably organic, preferably locally grown, fresh, 50% or more, I can't even say it, 50% or more raw, some cooked, and when it's cooked, foods should be steamed or cooked in soups, nothing really fried, limited amounts, again, for celebration or some special event. And it's easy. So when we're thinking about dieting, when we're thinking about school lunch plans, I don't think focusing on calories is the way to go. And unfortunately, we have the USDA guidelines and they tell you uh, how meals should have certain amounts of protein from certain sources and carbohydrates and fat. Hopefully, in the next decade or so, as we're learning more about nutrition, these guidelines will change for the better. Uh, Unfortunately, the government seems to be behind all of the latest science, so it's going to take a long time. (laughs) Okay, well, we can only hope for better things to come, right? So the FTC has just come out with revised green guides. They have green guides to help marketers on what they can talk about on their products in order to make it more easily understood and not be deceptive. So you can go to ftc.gov and put green guides in the search bar and you can get the summary or the actual guide. And I just wanted to talk about some of the summary of the new green guides. So it's basically for for marketers and what they're saying about their product and what they're claiming. Because now it's really very hip to say that things are green or eco-friendly. But both of those things don't really mean anything. And so now what they're saying is if you're going to be labeling products with environmental benefits. You have to be more specific. So uh, marketers can talk about carbon offsets, but they need to have competent and reliable scientific evidence to support their claims. Why not? I like that. 
And then there are a variety of different certifications and seals. And if a marketer is going to use them, they need to disclose any material connections to the certifying organization. That's good, because I can imagine if uh, if if they weren't if there there weren't guidelines like this, and I don't know how. I'm not sure yet about these guidelines if marketers will get penalized if they don't follow these guides. I have to look into that a little more. <clears throat> but certainly there could be very deceptive certifications certified by. We see this already, for example, on egg products because we know that um, free range doesn't mean a whole lot. And uh, the egg companies have different labels that they put on their product that really are deceptive and make consumers feel like the the hands are treated well, but the labels that they put really are meaningless. And so hopefully some of these guidelines will help avoid some of that. We'll see. Of course, I don't think any guidelines work if there's no penalty for not following them. But the guidelines involve compostable products, degradable products, claims that products are free of certain things. And that's always tricky, too, because some of the free of claims are based on not having more than trace amounts and uh, what we've seen, unfortunately, when it comes to oil, for example, there have been companies that label their products saying that they're fat-free because they make the serving size small enough so that the amount of oil in it is a whatever the trace amount of that product, of that oil is. And the serving size really isn't the normal serving size that people would eat. It's much, much smaller. You see that in those cooking sprays. Some of them say that they're fat-free. And they are not fat-free. They're all fat. But because the serving size is so small, they're allowed to say that it's fat-free. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of crazy things that go on. And uh, there are guidelines in these new green guides that involve recycled content and ozone safe, ozone friendly, non-toxic. And again, the guidelines say that they need to be based on competent and reliable scientific evidence. So let's see if we see any changes based on the new green guides. I would like to see that. Speaking of green, huh, this really surprises me sometimes. I know most people don't know where their kitchen is. I know this. I know many people don't know how to prepare food. There was an article about what to do with parsley. When you have a recipe that says parsley and you only need a tiny little bit and then you have this bouquet of parsley and you don't know what to do with it. And 
It just boggles my mind. But, you know, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm talking. That's why I'm sharing information because a lot of people don't know. I put a lot of recipes up at Responsible Eating and Living and some people have told me that the recipes look good, but they don't have all the ingredients and they don't want to buy a big bag of spice or something that they don't normally use just to make that recipe. Sure, I understand that. Personally, I think if you're going to be eating a healthy plant-based diet, your kitchen needs to have a complete transformation if you're coming from a standard American diet. A complete transformation. Um, In my kitchen, in the pantry, I have lots of herbs and spices. I buy them in very large quantities and I add lots of them to every meal. This is what gives flavor because I'm not eating salt and very little oil if if I use any at all. And the flavors come from quality vegetables and fruits, quality plant foods, and herbs and spices. Whenever I make a soup, most soups you get in restaurants and stores are loaded with salt. How do you get a soup to taste good without salt? You have to add other flavors to it. Certainly your taste buds need to become accustomed to eating less salt. That's a piece of it. But I love adding lots of spices. When I see recipes sometimes for dishes, I see half a teaspoon of this, a quarter teaspoon of this. I'm adding teaspoons, tablespoons sometimes of different herbs and spices. This gives a lot of bang. And so I encourage you, buy herbs and spices and use them. So when this article came up, Uh, about somebody buying fresh parsley and not knowing what to do with it. There are so many things that you can do with parsley. Number one, you can just eat it. (laughs) I love the taste of parsley and just chomping on it is delicious. Of course, I juice every day. And if I find I'm not going to be using parsley anytime soon, like in a day or two, I'll just put the whole bunch in my juice and it's gone. Parsley is so good in so many things. Now, we make soup almost all the time. You can easily add a whole head of parsley to a soup or just a little bit, but it's very flavorful and it's, it's, it's so good for you. Now, one of the things that I love to do is chop up parsley and add it to salad. It's great in a salad. Tons of fresh parsley. You may have had the Middle Eastern dish tabbouleh, and that's what I love about tabbouleh. Tabbouleh is traditionally bulgur wheat with tomatoes, onions, lemon juice, parsley, mint, olive oil, and uh, the ratios will vary depend on the region that the tabbouleh comes from. The kind that I like looks green because there's so much parsley and mint. It's just such a delicious combination. I can't do enough things with parsley. In the New York Times, they made some recommendations where you could make um, 
you can add parsley to hummus and a variety of different things, make some dips with it. And yeah, sure, they were all good. Um, but we need to rethink the way we think about food. We need to get to know our kitchen. We need to be using more herbs and spices, fresh and dry. And parsley is a good thing. I remember once being at a bar mitzvah. I was invited to a bar mitzvah. I didn't know anyone there. I was sitting at a table with people I didn't know. And we were served the, I think the appetizer. I don't remember what it was, but it had a watercress garnish on it. And I said to the server, can you get me a plate of watercress? And he said, sure. And a bunch of time went by. And um, then when I saw this server again, I said, I asked you for watercress. And he said, I thought you were kidding. <laughs> and then he came back with some watercress. And, and uh, it drives me nuts because the watercress was used as a garnish. And I'm sure many people were not even touching it. And yet that is such a delicious, nutritious food. Now, you can have watercress chopped up fresh in a salad. Fabulous. One of my favorite things to do with watercress is to saute it with fresh ginger. It is incredible. And we have a recipe for that at responsibleeatingandliving.com. Oh, yeah. So that's what you do with pepper. I, uh, I went over to the newspaper Le Figaro, which is a French paper. I, I like to check up on the headlines to see what people are saying in France. And for the most part, the headlines are very similar to what's going on here in the United States. It's always amusing to see how they talk about what's going on here in the United States. And uh, something caught my eye because there was an article about diabetes and I went more into the newspaper site and read a bunch of different articles that they had on diabetes. And uh, what's interesting is, um, you know, a lot of us have been made to believe that the French are a lot healthier because they have red wine and uh, I don't know, a lot of different reasons. Even the belief is though, even though they eat rich foods, they don't have the same health problems that we do. And uh, that's really not true. And uh, they ha are having an increase in diabetes. And uh, what I thought was interesting in one of the articles that I read is, it surprised me, but I was happy to read it. And uh, I'm reading it here and I'm I'm going to translate it as I read it, but it was saying that one of the things that you can do to prevent diabetes or to reverse the condition is to eat a very diet that is not very rich in animal fat, um, meats, butter, and cheese. They're saying that we should not be eating a lot of these foods. And I went, whoa, I'm reading this in a very mainstream French paper. And uh, 
that's encouraging. Now, whether people are going to follow that or not, that's, that's another story. Let's see. This week at Responsible Eating and Living, we posted a number of different recipes, and I wanted to talk about them. And one of them is what we call at home the cracked salad. It's like crack. We can't stop eating it. But uh, we call it the heavenly salad. And uh, it's a lovely salad of grated Napa cabbage with bean sprouts, cilantro. It's really fresh, wonderful. Sometimes we put peanuts in with it or chopped almonds. But it's really fabulous, satisfying. When you grate a head of Napa cabbage, you really get a lot. And it's very, very filling. And uh, it made me think back to when I was 12 years old. And my best friend, she, she lived in an interesting family. She had, uh, it's very complicated. She had... Um, a mother who had remarried three times and then her mother died and then her father, stepfather remarried. And there were lots of different kids in the family and cultures. And the father was, I think from Chile and his mother lived with them and she spoke Spanish. And, you know, at the time we didn't have as many Spanish speaking people in this country and I was kind of fascinated by the whole culture that was in her house and fascinated that she spoke two languages. That really amazed me when I was 12 years old. I I really enjoy the fact that I can speak French now and some German, but uh, people, I think it's so important that people can speak many languages. I'm, I'm very impressed when spe- people can speak a number of languages. And um, anyway, she invited me over for dinner and we were served a cabbage salad. And when I was 12 years old, this kind of freaked me out. But I was being polite and I ate the salad and it was strange. I was used to soft iceberg lettuce if we had salads and creamy kinds of dressings. This was a stiff green cabbage, not a Chinese Napa cabbage, but a stiff green cabbage. And it had some vinegar on it. And it was very, very foreign to me. And now thinking back on it, um, I would love to have a salad like that. (laughs) Cabbage salads are great. And um, I would like to see them come back into this culture. So certainly with all the different ethnic variations of food that mix in with our standard American diet, um, cabbage is great. It's really inexpensive and it lasts a long time in the refrigerator. I know some people complain that when they buy green food and they're trying to improve their diets, they buy all this produce and then they say, oh yeah, but it went bad. And my response to all of that is you have to eat it. You can't just buy it, but you have to eat it and you have to eat it right away. But cabbage is one of those foods that actually lasts a while. So I like to do my shopping and buy a lot of kale for my juices and for eating and romaine lettuce and some other lettuces and cabbage. And the cabbage 
kind of holds on so I can finish the other things while they're fresh and then I've got the cabbage left over before I go out and do another shopping. But uh, there are many different kinds of cabbage salad. Certainly we're all familiar with coleslaw, but um, cabbage salads can be there's a lot of different ways to make them, and we certainly have a few on the Responsible Eating and Living website. And there's green cabbage. There's different kinds of green cabbages. There are the ones that are smooth, relatively smooth leaf. There's curlier leaves. And then there's the Napa cabbage, which I find is really mm, the most delicious because the leaf is rather soft. And then there's red cabbage, too. Don't forget red cabbage. These all make really great salads. And as we're moving into the colder weather, cabbage is more available. And then the other thing is we made a wonderful stuffed Italian pepper dish. So, so good. So right now from our local farmer's market, there are these wonderful they're selling these wonderful Italian peppers. <clears throat> and here's a trick. Um, this is not true with bell peppers as much, but you should know that all peppers, green peppers, are not ripe. And that all peppers become different colors, red, yellow, orange. And um, when we buy the light green Italian peppers in just like two or three days, they ripen and become this beautiful red. And uh, the green peppers at the market, the Italian green peppers, they're less per pound than the red peppers, which doesn't really make sense to me. Sure, it takes longer for the peppers to get red, but by the time they're red, they're, they're ripe, and then they're going to start to degrade. I would think the farmers would want to get rid of them, but they are prettier. And very, very tasty. Anyway, they're a really delicious pepper. They're longer than the squat bell pepper. And I think they have a, a spicier, more peppery taste to them. It's hard to describe. But they're great to stuff. And this is something that you can make a dish like this in advance. And uh, what we like to do is cook it just enough so that the peppers are al dente. They're still a little firm so that if you want to reheat the dish and serve it for people, you, you're, it won't be as if it's overcooked. You can cook it a little more, reheat it again. But you can fill these peppers with so many things. Of course, what we did was a dish with rice and a marinated tempeh and some tomato sauce, but you can fill it with any different grain or bean or vegetables and uh, just a lovely, lovely dish. So you can check out that, our Tuscan-style Italian red peppers on the Responsibility and Living website. And the last thing I wanted to mention before I end the program today is that October is our fundraising annual appeal month and we are talking and posting all month 
about this fundraise drive where we are working to bring in funds in order to do the work that we do at Responsible Eating and Living and to do even more. We just got started last year and we've created a platform, ResponsibleEatingAndLiving.com, and there are so many different things that we want to do. If you go to ResponsibleEatingAndLiving.com, go to the Donate tab and see on the menu there underneath is our appeal letter. You can read that and see what we want to do in the upcoming year. And $5 or more, whatever you can, if you can support us, we would really appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much for listening. And that's another episode of Ask a Vegan. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. R-E-A-L Responsible eating, responsible eating, responsible eating and living. R-E-A-L Reels, good for the planet, the inhabitants who Needs sound advice on the right thing to do When it comes to good health We need facts that are true To choose what to eat and save the planet too As responsible eating and living oh. You'll find the real tools for you Real